0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dino dig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 361st episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new sauropod from Patagonia. We also have an interview with Edward Guimont about how dinosaurs are connected to myths and legends. And we have dinosaur of the day, Fabrosaurus. But before we get into all that, as always, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for keeping our podcast running. And this week, we want to thank Achilosaurus, Stegosaurus Noah, Arlosaurus, Misunderstood Oviraptor, Rogan, Bodyscephali, Albertosaurus, Robert, Ellen, and Verociraptor.
1: Awesome. Yes, thank you so much for being our patrons. As a quick reminder, if you're a dinosaur enthusiast in our Patreon community, next week is the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology Conference and We have promised all of our patrons that we will do some extra content around the non-dinosaurs that are covered in the conference, in the talks. We're not sure exactly which non-dinosaurs they are yet, but, you know, think mosasaurs, pterosaurs, those kinds of exciting animals.
0: (laughs) Think about whatever you're most excited about. They might be included.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can't promise, but it'll be something non-dinosaur.
0: Basically, whatever the most exciting non-dinosaur talks we see are.
1: So it's not too late to join. You just go to patreon.com inodino.
0: So jumping into the news, we've got our new sauropod. And this paper was published in Cretaceous Research, written by Mauro Rolando and others. And in it, they describe an entirely new sauropod site with several species, including a freshly named sauropod. Nice. So it's not just a new sauropod. It's actually a whole site. Of sauropods. Yeah, pretty much. Excellent. It's from the Rio Negro Province in Patagonia, Argentina, and more broadly, that's a part of the Allen Formation, which is in the Maastrichtian. So it's in the latest Cretaceous, the very end of the Cretaceous. And as expected, since we're talking about sauropods in the end of the Cretaceous in South America, we're talking about titanosaurs. So the fauna includes a lot of great material. They identified a Rocasaurus. Which is a saltasaurid, and that's a previously named dinosaur, Rocasaurus. Mm-hmm. Saltasaurids, as a group, as the authors describe them, are quote small and robustly built taxa that had facultative bipedalism. End quote.
1: Oh, interesting. End of the Cretaceous and facultative bipedalism.
0: Yeah. They're getting, they were like- On two legs. They're reverting to their sauropodomorph ancestors, shrinking down. Yeah. (laughs) Going on two legs. Except they were, as they said, robustly built, which is different than the early sauropodomorphs in a lot of cases. True. And they had osteoderms. A lot of them did, which is also very different than the early sauropodomorphs. Yeah. Those are probably my favorite sauropods. I wonder why. (laughs) The small, robustly built ones with osteoderms, that sounds like another type of dinosaur. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds tank-like, if you ask
0: me. They also found remains of a probable eolosaurine or maybe eolosaurines because it's always hard to know how many individuals the bones came from, but not always. In this case, it is. (laughs) That group includes titan and Rapatosaurus. But as the authors put it, eolosaurines are, quote, medium-sized, slender-limbed titanosaurs.
1: So you've got small, robust ones sauropods and then medium-sized slender
0: ones. Slender-limbed. Slender-limbed, not necessarily slender in the body Oh, part. I see, right,
1: because <laughs> they're still a titanosaur.
0: Yeah, well, but- I mean, titanosaurs can be small. They don't have to be beefy.
1: It's just interesting. You got the two living together.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of diversity in this fauna, and those eolosaurians also likely had relatively stiff tails is another sort of unique trait about them that you would notice by looking at it. They of course both have tons of unique features if you look at the bones and look for little bumps and ridges here and there, but it's a little too technical. They also found at least four types of osteoderms in the fauna and they could be just from one individual because one individual can have a lot of osteoderms and on different parts of the body, sometimes they look very different, but probably not because these include both bulb and root as well as keeled osteoderms, which aren't usually included on the same animal. So that's sort of the non new dinosaur. That's like the existing taxa information from the fauna. But the new dinosaur is named Maynuco Celsior, And the name Maynuco Celsior comes from both Menuco, which is the Mapundungan word for waterhole, because it was found at Salitral Ojo de Agua and Ojo de Agua roughly translates to water hole. So, I mean, it has that same kind of meaning. So then they tried to include the place name in a clever way and they used a local language to do that and came up with Menuko. And the authors translate Celsius from Latin as major, although usually it's translated as taller or loftier. Hmm. So basically what you have is the tall one at the watering hole if you combine the name and translate it to English. Sounds
1: like a good description.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So that's the genus name. And then the species name, Ariagatai, is after Beto Ariagata and his family as, quote, the owners of the farm that includes the fossil sites here reported, which are also enthusiastic on preserving fossils from the area and usually help us to find fossil sites during our field trips, end quote. Nice. So they sound like a good group of dinosaur or paleo enthusiasts that happen to own a bunch of lands that have dinosaurs on them (laughs) and other fossils.
1: Sounds like a good collaboration.
0: It does. I can see why they named a dinosaur after them. So based on its name and being considered lofty or tall, you might think that it's tall like a brachiosaurus, but it's definitely not. (laughs) It is maybe taller than the other things that have been found at Saltrial Ojo de Agua at that site, you know, these couple of other individuals. And it's probably taller than some of the other previous animals that aren't sauropods from the area, which include alvarezsaurids, hadrosaurids, ornithopods, and sauropod nests, which obviously aren't very tall, <laughs> as well as pterosaurs and plesiosaurs. But the sauropod nest didn't include any bones. So it's like we could tell that it was a nesting site, but we couldn't tell what the animals were or obviously how big they were. So out of the fauna, the only named taxa of a sauropod other than menuco is Rocosaurus, which was about eight meters or 26 feet long when it was alive, which is not very big, especially for a sauropod.
1: The small, robust one, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but menuco in their skeletal appears to be a little bit bigger maybe it looked when i measured it it rounded to eight meters but it was a rounding down to eight meters so maybe it's a little bit over eight meters as a it's a very rough estimate because i had to base it on just like sort of a rough outline and like you know a scale bar converted over into the skeletal from a different measurement somewhere else and all that but i always like to give a rough size estimate so It's probably about the same size as Rokosaurus, but maybe it's a little bit bigger. And that might be why they added the Celsius part to it Mm -hmm. to make it like, because it's the biggest one, maybe. (laughs) And for the record, it was roughly, again, 2.7 meters or nine feet tall at its hips. So that puts it between the heights of an adult female and an adult male African elephant.
1: Oh, yeah. That's not that large for a sauropod.
0: No. The authors generously describe it though, as a mid-sized titanosaur,
2: Hmm.
0: where it's like mid-sized African elephant height. (laughs) Doesn't seem like a mid-sized titanosaur to me, but I guess there are smaller titanosaurs and there are bigger ones. So Mm -hmm. then that makes this mid-sized. I also wanna point out, even though this specific site doesn't have larger titanosaurs, they are known from the broader Allen formation including a Rudotitan maximus, which is about 15 meters or 49 feet long, obviously way bigger than manuco Celsius
1: Well, that's a large one, not a mid-size
0: one. <laughs> I feel like even that is just on the larger size of mid, because they can get over 100 feet long. So that's 49 true. feet long, it's like, yeah, it's pretty, well, pretty big.
1: The over 100 feet ones are ginormous size. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. A lot of them are in that colossorial group. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Maynuchoselsior holotype includes a few useful bones. The best part is probably the tail vertebrae. There are 17 of them in total, but there are gaps in between them and they weren't really articulated and they're sort of scattered around. But based on their sizes, they sort of fit them together into where they probably were in the tail. And basically they're in four sets. There were three by the hips. They're sure about two of them. And they're like, probably the third one was also the next one in the series. And then there are also groups of three, six, and five vertebrae, respectively, as you go towards the tip of the tail. So a couple of little smatterings here and there, which was useful. It's especially useful to figure out the overall length of the animal, since tail can be up to half of a dinosaur easily. They also found the right humerus, left fibula, and an incomplete foot bone to go along with the tail vertebrae.
1: All right. Not a bad find.
0: No, it's pretty good, especially for a sauropod. You know, you've got a few limb bones and a lot of vertebrae. You can do a lot with that information. It'd be nice to have a skull and have the hips too. That would tell us a lot more information, but it was enough to find some unique details. So that's why I ended up getting a new name. Mm -hmm. Some of the interesting details about its description, which were the partly the justification for it being a unique dinosaur genus is that it had a stout humerus with a large ridge and that is quote unquote probably unique to Menucocelsia although interestingly even though it had a large ridge presumably for a different muscle attachment it had a short deltopectoral crest which is the main muscle attachment point that we usually talk about on the humerus so that's kind of weird hmm. It also had a fibula described as short and stout, and it had rod-like and triangular projections from the side of its first two tail vertebrae.
1: Defense, maybe?
0: No, those are like attachment points for ligaments and oh, stuff like okay. that. They didn't, Yeah, they didn't project that far. Okay. <laughs> they just projected a little bit probably still within the meat of the tail. Although, I guess, I don't know, maybe, sure, if they grow really long, you could have some defense there. It wouldn't be a bad place to have a defensive spine. They classify Menuchoselcer as a U. Titanosaur, which is a group that includes most of these titanosaurs. It doesn't seem to be a Saltosaurine, eolosaurine, or Kalosaurine, which are the three major groups or three of the major groups in U. Titanosauria. But Menuchoselcer is in good company because there are a lot of other U. Titanosaurs that aren't in those groups. So there's the, the phylogeny is a big ol' mess. So They didn't even do that much of a phylogeny with this one, probably because it doesn't fit nicely into one of those groups. They mostly just talked about overall, like we see this number of this type of group and this number of this type of group. And it basically led to the conclusion you said earlier, which is look at them all coexisting, these different types of sauropods all over the place.
1: Mm -hmm. What a nice place it must have been.
0: Yeah. And there were a lot of places like it. It wasn't just the Saltrial Ojo de Agua formation. There are lots of examples of different fauna around Patagonia that have multiple of these types of sauropods in them. The authors think, as you might assume, they probably could coexist because they occupied different niches, presumably eating different food, or otherwise separating out so that they weren't constantly competing for the exact same food, because then you'd expect one of them to win out eventually. And in case you're curious, the Menuco Celsier Holotype is housed at the Natural Science Museum of Patagonia in the same province where it was found.
1: Cool. Another museum on our list of museums we want to see.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a big one that comes up a lot.
1: Yeah, think of the sauropods.
0: (laughs) That's true. It is largely sauropods there.
1: Moving on from sauropods. I mean, I could talk about sauropods all day, but there are other dinosaurs, I suppose, to (sighs) talk about. (laughs) This is an update on Pops the Ceratopsian. That's the Ceratopsian in Weld County, Colorado. We last talked about Pops in episode 243, so it's been a little while. As a quick recap, Pops was found in 1982 and donated to Weld County, and then they had a public contest to name the skull, and that's how Pops became Pops. <laughs> and last fall, Pops was moved to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science to be cleaned up and restored, and that work is now done.
0: So you can see Pops? Pops. Or maybe you could see Pops the whole time.
1: Not yet. Oh, I think you're right. I think you could have seen Pops being cleaned up, but they're going to make a replica first and then Pops will go back on display at Weld County and they're going to have a new case in the lobby and there'll be some artwork around Pops. Nice. Yeah. So they found a lot of other fossils when they moved Pops to clean up and restore, including 20 ribs and Pops's lower jaw. So now Pops has a complete
0: skull. Wow, that's really good.
1: Yeah. And Joe Sertich, who led the team cleaning up Pops, said that based on some features of the skull, Pops may not be a Triceratops. I used to think Pops was definitely a Triceratops, but instead could be an Eotriceratops or an entirely new species. They need to do some studies and eventually, hopefully, they'll publish about it. Oh, also, Pops is about 1.5 to 2 million years older than other known Triceratops fossils, so that makes it seem like "Eh, maybe Pops isn't a Triceratops. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is along the limits of how long a species usually lasts, or I guess it's more than average. That's what I should say, is that two million years is around the average length that a species is around. Yeah. So when you start to get longer than two million years before the last known <laughs> triceratops, then yeah, could be its own thing.
1: Pops could be a Pops to triceratops.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Good one.
1: Although that's so hard to prove, but it's fun to think about. So North Dakota, there's two big items. The Dickinson Museum Center's Badlands Dinosaur Museum is getting a tyrannosaur skeleton. It's 76 million years old. It's in a block right now that weighs between 9,000 and 13,000 pounds. It's an eight by 10 foot block.
0: Oh man. Mm-hmm. That's like about the size of the Utah raptor block. I think that was like in that range or maybe it was twice that big.
1: I thought the Utah raptor block was 10 by 10 i don't remember how much it weighs and it
0: was i think that one also was sort of like a cube mm-hmm. so this is eight by ten but it's probably not ten feet thick it's mm. probably only like two or three feet thick
1: uh i yeah i'm not sure exactly they found the skeleton they found the feet and the ankles sticking out of a cliff in 2017 and they've been excavating 2018 and 2019 they know the skeleton's on its side it fell into a river washed up on a riverbank that's according to denver fowler And it's curled up, which may mean that the skeleton's pretty intact, but it's hard to tell because it's still in the block. Hmm. And they found three other Tyrannosaur skeletons in the area, and two of the four have been airlifted to the museum. So visitors can see the Tyrannosaur being prepared over the next two years in a public viewing lab.
0: Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that's close to the ideal, right? You see like a foot sticking out of a cliff and then you hope that as you dig back, you've got the whole rest of the animal. That's what you want, like one of the ends, mm-hmm. like the end of a limb or the end of the tail or the end of the snout or something. And then, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that'd be cool if it ends up being a fully complete tyrannosaur. It
0: would be. I mean, if it's that big of a block, there's probably a lot of bones in there.
1: Mm-hmm. So the second item for North Dakota the North Dakota Heritage Center and State Museum in Bismarck has updated their Dakota the Dino Mummy exhibit. Mm. This is a 67-million-year-old mummified juvenile or teenaged Edmontosaurus, and it's been cleaned and being prepared for the last three years. It was found in 1999 by Tyler Lyson, who found it on his uncle's ranch and then excavated in 2004. So it'd been on display before from 2008 to 2018. But the new display, you can see skin with scales and fingernails. You can see an arm and the tail now. Mm. And the hips and the neck, they're still in a block and being prepared. They'll be displayed later. And if you're visiting, you can take tours to see the preparation. Cool. Mm-hmm.
0: I like how they describe it as scales and fingernails.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like,
0: that's It makes them sound not nearly as beefy as they were fingernails.
1: Oh, true. I was thinking that makes them sound more mummified for some reason.
0: Yeah. It's more like claw sheets.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> even Edmontosaurus had some decent claws.
1: Yeah. I always like it when you can see the skin.
0: Oh, yeah. That's amazing.
1: So our last item... There's another step taken in Podokasaurus becoming the state dinosaur of Massachusetts. The House passed the legislation on October 15th. And the next step is the Senate in Massachusetts. The last step was the state administration and regulatory oversight committee voting to move it forward to the House. I didn't realize there were so many steps. Although maybe I should have because we've talked about dinosaurs becoming state dinosaurs before. Yes. So after that, there's one more vote in each chamber, and then the governor will sign it. And it sounds like it's progressing pretty quickly.
0: Non-controversial legislation. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves dinosaurs.
1: Everybody wants a state <laughs> dinosaur.
0: That too. They're falling behind. <laughs> Got to catch up, Massachusetts.
1: They're working on it. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th.
1: Head over to cncc.edu/dinodig you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again that is cncc.edu/dinodig D I N O D I G.
0: And now we're going to go on to our interview with Dr. Edward Guimont. But in case you want to hear more of this and you're a patron, check out your premium content feed, because as always, we talked longer than we had originally intended and had lots of other good content in there. So we couldn't fit it all into the episode, but definitely check it out.
1: That's what happens when you get a few dinosaur enthusiasts together.
0: Yeah, it does happen pretty much every time. <laughs> <laughs> We're joined this week by Dr. Edward Guimont. He's an assistant professor of world history at Bristol Community College, and we're talking to him today because there's some really interesting different aspects of paleontology that he's talked about in the past.
1: But also like prehistoric animals and kind of myths and legends and all kinds of interesting connections.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So uh, I guess let's start first with the article that's... bit more about the dinosaurs, the hunting dinosaurs in Central Africa. It looks like it came out a couple years ago, and you mentioned that was originally part of your dissertation?
2: Yeah, so this was part of my dissertation, which I should say, I'm not a paleontologist, not even technically a historian of science. I think technically my field is modern Europe, but it's pretty wide-ranging. But my dissertation was focused on this city and what is now the country of Zimbabwe, Great Zimbabwe, which the country is now named after. But this was a city that thrived in the Middle Ages. It went into decline right around the time Europeans started to arrive in southeastern Africa. And so it led to a lot of discussions about the origins of the city, because there were many legends already springing up around the time, first with the Arabs, then the Portuguese, the Dutch, the Germans, the British all of them had different interpretations of who had, you know, quote, really built this city. And so this was something that I, I kind of spun off of an earlier version of my dissertation. It was a, a very meandering uh, topic. But <laughs> uh, using this city, I kind of looked at a lot of issues of you know, pseudo history and settler colonial politics in broadly the British Empire, and to a wider extent, the US as well. But From looking through all of the various ways that different regimes have kind of, you know, tried to invent their own history and tie it in with Great Zimbabwe, I kind of, you know, through discovery found that one of the most popular theories of where the city came from were that the ancient Israelites had gone to South Africa and that this had been the city of Ophir mentioned in the Bible built by King Solomon. And so there's a lot of the versions of the history of Great Zimbabwe have this Old Testament connection to it hmm. which then you know through looking at some of these connections I came across you know some interpretations linking this with the book of Daniel and the you know the infamous story of the lion's den and how in some versions of the book of Daniel it's not just a lion but a dragon hmm. and how people had you know argued this dragon was connected with a you know dragon from Babylonian mythology the Sirush, which then of course had to have come from central Africa because you know, obviously this is where the you know, Middle Easterners at the time were getting all their gold and diamonds mm-hmm. from this historical interpretation. So therefore, there had to be been some kind of you know, giant dragon in you know, Central Africa at the time. And then this tied in with other claimed sightings of giant lizards from big game hunters. And then this ultimately ties in with this legendary creature uh, of the indigenous peoples of the area called the Mokele Mbembe, so this all essentially gets tied together to the argument that the Mokele Mbembe is a living dinosaur, and it got brought to the Middle East by the ancient Israelites who built Great Zimbabwe. And you know, you have this Old Testament prophet who's you know fighting dinosaurs in ancient Babylonia through this you know very tangled mix of you know, speculation and actual history, and colonial politics, and you know Bible studies, all kind of just getting. Churned together uh, in a way which sounds fantastic, but really, I mean, it's through my work, it's it's a lot more common than you might think in a lot of colonial era political uh, worldviews.
0: That's really interesting. I think we we talked a little bit about Michaela Mbembe before, and it's I feel like the legend I remembered it wasn't in Zimbabwe, but it was more central, like in Democratic Republic of the Congo or like sort of that area. Is it just sort of like a vague somewhere in Africa? thing or well, is... it's
2: interesting because you know this shows also kind of you know the european view of africa where a lot of the stuff that you know we now interpret as the mokele mbembe early on came out of zimbabwe uh zambia area sightings which then got associated with the term mokele mbembe which is you know generally from further northwest mm. and then you know sometimes you'll see it associated with sightings in ghana and that <laughs> area so far. It's essentially you know, it's it's become kind of like I think there may be a a charitable way to interpret it as you know a Pan-African myth, and perhaps a less charitable, maybe more accurate way of interpreting it as you know, know, to Europeans, Africa is just you know the same place. Of course, you know, Congo, Zimbabwe, Ghana. No, what's the difference?
0: (laughs) Just a couple thousand miles, (laughs) right? Yeah, (laughs) like all of Europe. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's really interesting.
2: So
1: then, how did it end up? being thought of as a dinosaur?
2: Well, so you have at the time, there are a lot of big game hunters, I know, obviously going to Africa, because, you know, this is you know where a lot of the big megafauna still exist, especially in the 19th century. And you start to get reports from a lot of the hunters in the area that, you know, oh, I saw this giant creature in the bush. And then, you know, I asked the natives to draw a picture of it for me and you know it's uh they drew a brontosaurus and you know it always starts off as a brontosaurus (laughs) partly because you know this is also especially it's getting tied in a bit with arthur conan doyle's the lost world Mm -hmm. which also uh is kind of a case zero for a lot of these types of uh living dinosaur monster sightings so in some cases you know it's building off the idea that there are these giant lizards that big game hunters are either claiming they saw or think they saw or maybe saw part of an animal and you know had it drawn from them but the key thing is they're then turning to the lore of the indigenous peoples in the area and trying to extrapolate out of that which of course then comes to the problem of you know some of them are not so good at the indigenous languages so there's stuff getting lost in the translation stuff possibly being deliberately, you know, misidentified mm-hmm. in translation from either side. Especially later on, there's a factor of, you know, again, whether deliberately or you no know, accidentally or just through shrewd business, a lot of the indigenous people know that or these people are coming to try and find, you know, dinosaurs. So all right, we're gonna draw some dinosaurs for them to make them happy. Mm. So some general mix of this. But it's essentially know, the argument that these, from the European point of view, these indigenous peoples who had just been, you know, cut off from civilization, they didn't know, they have no knowledge of fossils at all, but they're drawing these dinosaurs, obviously, therefore, it's proof that dinosaurs are real and that, you know, this giant gray creature I saw in the river was really a brontosaurus (laughs) and not, you know, just a hippopotamus or something like that.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. That reminds me a lot of like Loch Ness, where it's like Absolutely. The the whole industry there is like, yeah, sure, maybe there's something there. It's like all the people there have never seen anything, but they'll they're (laughs) happy to have tourists come through, so they'll keep, you know, (laughs) feeding the fire, I guess. And one of the big sightings in Loch Ness,
2: one of the first big early waves. It happens right after the release of King Kong, you know, which features a plesiosaur, mm-hmm. and that's kind of right when the Loch Ness Monster, which originally had not, it was kind of originally identified more as a hippopotamus <laughs> type thing, like, <laughs> like the first few like modern Loch Ness Monster sightings, it's walking around on land. It's after King Kong comes out, which has this plesiosaur battle, that's when the Loch Ness Monster transforms into a plesiosaur, mm-hmm. in kind of the public imagination. It's
0: like aliens. Aliens always look like the most recent movie version of an alien. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Somehow that happens.
1: It sounded like in your article, too, what kind of fueled this was the discovery. A fisherman caught a, a coelacanth in 1938 or something, and people thought, oh, we thought that was extinct.
2: What else could be not extinct? Exactly. Of course, you know, they're finding it in Africa, too, and Africa is, you know, longstanding association of a place that's mysterious, a place that's cut off from civilization, a place that's, you know, cut off from evolution, or, you know, even if you follow the polygenist account of human origins, I guess, and you know, other people into the 20th century arguing that, you know, it's evolution is completely separate in Africa from elsewhere in the world. Mm. So there's these longstanding colonialist notions of Africa's you know, a separate, it's an unknown place compared to Europe or even Asia or the Americas to some extent. And so therefore, of course, you know, if there is going to be a living dinosaur, it's going to be in Africa. And that's why when they find the coelacont, this thing that, you know, to Europeans had been, you know, thought extinct for millions of years. I mean, local African fishermen, they'd known, they know me about it mainly as something to avoid yeah. catching mm-hmm. because apparently if you eat I me mean, I guess it uh, makes you vomit. Ooh. So they- it's essentially, just this fish that none of them wanted. And then <laughs> mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I know to Europeans, it's this new discovery that proves that you know creatures out of time can exist in Africa.
1: What I found really interesting too is, and I guess I never really thought about how these stories started, or at least didn't think too much about them, and the you know all the, the things that came together. But we've got movies like recent movies about stuff like this, like uh, well, I guess nineteen eighty four, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. Garrett and I watched something that I had to look it up. I guess it's from 2014 called Dinosaur Island, and it's like a boy's on an island with dinosaurs, and then there's a little bit – it's a little bit different. There's like a girl who I guess got stuck there from the 1950s, but it's still <laughs> – like I think it was in Africa, and there's dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs>
2: hmm Yep. You got like the Dinotopia books in the 90s. Those were very
0: popular. Oh, those are my favorite.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that whole Lost World. I feel like Dinotopia was sort of a combination of Lost World with like the Shangri-La Lost Horizon style
2: where it's like,
0: (laughs) I prefer that. It's not like hunting and like capturing. It's more just like, look at these people coexisting peacefully with dinosaurs all this time. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but there's so many of these kinds of stories and they've been coming out like fairly consistently yeah
0: (laughs) clearly people want to believe that dinosaurs are still around and imagine what it would be like they
2: have some like even from the start of you know
0: fossils being identified
2: in the 19th century uh i've seen it in a few victorian era novels you know arguing that you know pterodactyls are actually you know the origin of dragons so there is this uh, almost from the start this big desire to see uh that dinosaurs are part of this uh, myth. I don't know J.R.R. Tolkien in one of his letters. He was talking about how the fell beasts from Lord of the Rings, or mm-hmm. you know, tended to kind of be pterodactyls or uh, similar. And he was talking about I think it's like the new mythology of paleontology, and he's drawing on this idea of geological history as it's being discovered and tying it in with his whole fantasy timeline uh so right there you know it's we have all this stuff you know probably like the the biggest like most epic myth or i guess artificial <laughs> myth i guess all myths are artificial but you know lord <laughs> of the rings and even that's tying in elements of you know what if dinosaurs survived and you know, then you know join the dark side i guess mm-hmm. yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome i never realized because i you know it's again my version of the fell beasts or you know the dragon yeah. things the ring racer riding the I think of the movie version, because that was I saw that young enough that it's like, well, that's what they look like. And those were like crazy, way bigger than pterosaurs, don't look really much like any sort of extinct creature. It's interesting that Tolkien was thinking that it was maybe more like an actual living creature than this insane thing that they came up with for the <laughs> well, movie.
2: I've heard that, and I, I don't know a ton about his personal life. So, but I, I have heard that he was an amateur fossil hunter, like in uh, England, and he's originally from South Africa, I believe, too. So he oh, may have yeah. you know been following the news of the Cilic. Although, by oh well, yeah, I guess by then he was as around when he was writing The Hobbit. So yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, he seems like a really interesting guy. I've. If yeah. That's one of those like if you could have a dinner party with, you know, yeah, from of, the past, uh, yeah. <laughs> Tolkien would definitely be in the mix.
2: <laughs> well, especially because he's hanging out with C.S. Lewis too. So <laughs> like Venice, you know, the two big minds of, like modern fantasy were like friends with each other.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs>
1: and so your article also mentioned Tarzan comics and Tom Swift books.
2: Yeah, it's uh I guess there's they're gonna be making a new TV show out of him. He was like the boy genius inventor type guy from the nineteen sixties. And my local library had all of those books. So I actually did read the one with and it, it wasn't called Mokele Mabembe, but it definitely tied in with the notion of, you know, the African continents hiding these dinosaurs. Although as I believe in that book, it was actually some like geneticists had gone into Africa to like, rebirth dinosaurs. But it ends also with you know them setting aside a nature preserve to create a place for these reanimated dinosaurs to you know so it's kind of predicting jurassic park and mm-hmm. of course you know tarzan is there i believe like in the 90s before disney bought marvel comics i guess there's still some like disney comic that i don't really know but like there's some the lion king spinoff comic where simba meets the mokele Mbembe. What?
0: yeah yeah i gotta find that That's yeah.
2: a- it's I, I i tried find it's i mean who it's you know some twenty year old like obscure Disney comic and it's just I mean actually you know uh, like you mentioned the uh, the baby baby the lost dinosaur but mm-hmm. that was a Disney movie and it's not on Disney Plus which I'm really upset like I oh, want yeah, to that's watch that again but and I think there's a few things in that era of Disney's history that they're not too eager to kind of <laughs> bring back new
1: stuff. yeah it was also I mean, we've talked about comics and movies and things but there were a fair number of books too that mentioned well i guess all kinds of things there's that that first book the the lungfish the dodo and the unicorn
2: yes by, by willie lay who's a very interesting person on like so much of not just a lot of science fact but science fiction in general comes out of this work so he was a guy who was interested in many many things among them uh rocketry initially so he was part of uh, the pre-nazi german rocket program Hmm. uh, like with werner von Braun. he actually was a science consultant on this space travel movie that fritz lang did after metropolis called woman in the moon which invents the countdown for the rocket launch which apparently came from willie lay when the nazis came to power willie lay basically forged a passport came to the u.s uh, which again (laughs) All his friends in the rocket program did not, but they got reunited anyway when they got recruited, you know, taken to the U.S. after the war. So mm. he is not part of Operation Paperclip, but essentially all his friends were. But so <laughs> afterwards, he becomes friends with uh, Arthur C. Clarke. He becomes friends with uh, Walt Disney. Uh, so I mean, he works on a lot of stuff, especially with uh, the space program. But he's also very interested in what he calls romantic zoology, what comes to be known as cryptozoology. You know stuff like searching for Bigfoot, searching for the Loch Ness monster. So he writes this book. I think the original version came out in the early '40s, but he expanded it after the war ended, when there was the you no know, paper regulations and all that were relaxed. And the main version in 1948 is called "The Lungfish, the Dodo, and the Unicorn," I believe. It's a mix of you know things that are legitimate. Like the title says, the dodo Mm -hmm. looks at dragon myths, various like mythical stuff, but also things like the Mokele Mbembe, things like, you know, hairy man sightings. So again, it's this early example of cryptozoology, but showing how it's coming from this overlap of a actual interest in scientific biology, I guess we could say, and mythical biology and speculative, uh, (laughs) speculative evolution, perhaps.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. That is sort of usually the most dangerous type of pseudoscience where the person mixes reality with yes. not reality and you think, oh, this person's an extra. That lines up with this thing this other person said. This must just be an expansion of that. There are yep. unicorns and dragons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've never I couldn't imagine having lungfish and dodo. It's like, okay, yeah, those are interesting creatures. And then unicorn. It's yeah. like quite a leap from dodo to unicorn that <laughs> title
2: there is some evidence that some of these these uh speculations that uh, in later books he wrote that willie lay kind of you know withdrew from i think outright believing some of this stuff and i think there's also an argument that in some of these cases he's kind of just more interested in you know the existence of these myths than taking them literally hmm. but at the same time he's he's the one who's putting out a lot of this stuff <laughs> yeah. as well and then other people then take up, particularly uh, Bernard Hoovelmans, who becomes really the main, you know, one of the two big proponents of cryptozoology, who is very adamant that, you know, this, you know, the Mokele Mbembe is real. He was very obsessed with the idea that uh, Neanderthals still existed and that, you know, essentially like all fairies, all leprechauns, all gnomes and god these are all just people seeing neanderthals so it's uh <laughs> that's fun. This is the kind of guy who uh <laughs> who really runs with like the the Mokele Mbembe among other things as well.
0: Yeah, it's fun to see how people can try to connect these things and think yeah. about like, you know, if this was real assuming it is real then how does that work and
2: yeah (laughs)
0: usually it's always interesting but then yeah it it can take a turn towards unbelievable pretty quickly
2: yeah
1: yes (laughs) very quickly
0: (laughs) (laughs) pretty much immediately
1: yeah (laughs) and then kind of branch out and
2: then you got all these different branches
1: and
0: yeah Yeah.
2: (laughs) well and that's one of the interesting things like a lot of people in i guess you could say the the broader paranormal community, uh, I guess, like in the more modern day, at least, you know, you might think, you know, like, all right, someone who believes in UFOs, they're in their own corner, Bigfoot is in their own. But if if you actually read a lot of these reports, even like from decades ago, it's it's generally like if people who believe in one thing will tend to believe in the other. Like, there's a lot of stuff about how like, Know, people with psychic powers are observed, alleged psychic powers, I should say, are, you know, using their psychic powers to observe, you know, Bigfoot's coming out of UFO. So it's just all of this kind of paranormal stuff really is, you know, in a general overlap. And, and there's some exceptions, but I think in general, there is a general overlap. There's a uh, mm-hmm. archaeologist, uh, Jeb Card, who's written a lot of this, and he calls this the puffed paranormal unified field theory
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) the unifying theory of paranormals
2: yeah
0: Yeah, that's funny i remember there's one example i always hear of the psychic bigfoot where they're like no one ever sees bigfoot because bigfoot is psychic so it knows when people are coming and it can hide it's like that is a (laughs) fantastical way to explain that
2: (laughs) Or I always liked the idea that Bigfoot was like some alien pet who got left behind (laughs) when the didn't come back from the trip when the saucer left. Or, there's also people who claim that Bigfoot is like an alien prisoner, and they you no, know, it's like the Earth is a penal colony, and you know the flying saucers just dropping off, you know, these convict Bigfoots to you know, hang around you know, the Pacific Northwest or whatever.
0: Yeah. Oh man, that's so funny. That's definitely what you'd do with prisoners—you'd turn them into yeah. astronauts and fly them exactly like light years away.
1: So going on to your other article. The megalodon, a monster of the new mythology. Um, I bring this up now because that is interesting. It, it sounds like you're saying with megalodon, it's not as common to talk about, you know, trying to find a real life megalodon
2: today. It's not as I mean, there there still are you know some people who see it. Like I think I mentioned in the article just this past May, uh, May 2021. For anyone listening far in the future, <laughs> but uh, on on a uh, tiktok there is this whole wave of, you know people thinking that you know they had seen a megalodon which you know they have not and tiktok itself that's a whole breeding ground of a lot of stuff that's yeah. not in the reality-based community but so it like once in a while there is still kind of an upsurge but i think it it the megalodon is more in popular culture now which again is kind of appropriate in that for to some extent you know the the kind of renaissance of the Megalodon did come through popular culture. But mm. the idea, you know, broadly that, oh, the Megalodon might still exist. This is something that comes, you know, not from, not like with the Mokele Mbembe or even Bigfoot, stuff like that, of, you know, taking indigenous, you know, Westerners aren't going to, you know, some indigenous culture and saying, Oh they have a legend of a giant fish it must be a megalodon <laughs> this is coming from western science so it's coming from 19th century you know the british challenger expedition one of the bedrocks of modern oceanographic science hmm. they're dredging up these you know giant megalodon teeth from the seafloor there's people in london you know misidentifying the age of these teeth to make it seem like Oh, it's essentially, you know, just, you know, from yesterday, geologically speaking. (laughs) So this is a it's maybe a cautionary tale to some extent in that we think of Western science as being rational versus, you know, indigenous knowledges of various people, you know, being pre-scientific, you know, uh, foul, you know, interpreting and stuff. But this is a legend, a cryptozoological idea which comes from Western science was, you know, from what was widely seen as this rational, logical science. And ultimately it turns out that these approaches were not all that accurate, but, you know, from this idea of this giant prehistoric shark actually is still swimming around. And, you know, that really comes out of a view of Western science, which then Mm. got amended. But of course, as with a lot of this stuff, not only with cryptozoology, but with things with like uh, pseudo history in general, like with great Zimbabwe a lot of these proponents you know, of these views, they're not unscientific. They just accept a certain view of science and then yeah. will reject any revisions that come after it.
0: Yeah, that's sort of what makes pseudoscience pseudoscience, right? It's exact, like yeah. it's it's scientific to a point, but then there's some sort of motivated reasoning behind it that leads it in a very specific direction that is no longer scientific.
2: Yeah, there's a geologist named Sharon Hill, and she recently, I think it was maybe four or five years ago published a book called Scientifical Americans, which is how you know, this modern uh, pseudoscience movement emerges from people who you know think they know what the scientific method is. they think they know how scientists operate, but they don't really. so you know, just exploring like the idea of you know pseudoscience as people trying to essentially imitate what they think scientists do without mm. having any of the expertise in the relevant fields or understanding of methodology.
0: Yeah. It's really not super complicated science. You know, it's more about like disproving things. That's the thing people don't realize on the statistical side of it too, because most people will look at an anecdote and think that that can be science. Like I found this thing and it does this thing. Therefore causation. It's like, well, that's, you have to do a little more rigor than that in order to get the the causation, and it seems like that's where a lot of that pseudoscience stuff sits. Where it's like one person does one thing, sees one picture of a Mokele Mbembe drawn by somebody, and is like, "That's proof. That's all we need exactly. now." Like scientifically proven, it's like that's that does not stand up to the rigor of proving that that animal exists. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and and I should say you know, I mentioned that my dissertation spun off this, you know, completely unexpectedly. There's another big research project I'm working on which is a history of flat earthers which again came out of my dissertation something I was not expecting going in but again so it's there's a group of flat earthers who use scientific tools to you know measure you know the curvature of the earth and you know their very scientific instruments show them the earth is round and even then even though they say they believe in science even though they're using scientific instruments correctly even though they're then seeing the data, it's then, okay, well, the data is still going against my belief. So obviously the data is wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The flat earth thing is one of the most interesting because people often think when you haven't spoken to a flat earther, that it would be so simple to convince them because there are all these easy ways to show you know, that the earth is round, but you can rationalize anything if you're motivated. It becomes, you know, like it's no longer, it's just like a flat earth. Now it's a disc that's accelerating and that's how you explain gravity and the way yeah. the stars are there, they're also accelerating in the same way. And you, like, if you want, you can keep going down like more and more rabbit holes of different <laughs> cross-linked, you know, unifying theory, like you're saying of pseudoscience.
2: And it is interesting with flat earth in that in some respects, you know, they're very open minded because there's so many different schools, you know, is the earth a infinite plane? Is it, you know, a single, you know, disc, you know, is there, they have a much, bunch of different conceptions of, you know, what the flat earth actually looks like or how it functions or who built it and stuff, but they're all happy to get along with each other. As long as they all disagree there's, you know, it's flat, you can quibble about <laughs> no. everything else.
1: So I know you're working on a couple other
2: projects. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, I think maybe the one that's most uh, relevant is on, again, kind of a a spinoff of the dinosaur article is on people who believe that woolly mammoths still existed. And that's actually uh, very similar to the Mokele Mbembe, but one that's based in North America in particular in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it is interesting because again, it ties in with ideas of, well, first of African knowledge because it's in the early 1700s in South Carolina, where on the early you know, English plantations, the slaves are digging up these bones. The plantation owners thinks these are you know, the bones left over by the giants killed in Noah's flood. It's the African slaves who identify them as elephant bones. So you have the start of, you know, and arguably the science of American paleontology comes from both the labor and the knowledge of Africans from the Congo that were brought over in the slave trade.
0: Wow, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, it's something that really blew my mind when I first read about that. But it gets tied in with this you know, early competition with you know Thomas Jefferson and was it a Charles Buffon, Buffoon, forgetting the specific name about uh, you know, American greatness versus European greatness and you know that America allegedly didn't have any giant animals, so it was a, a country doomed to degeneration. So again, part of the Lewis and Clark expedition was try to find you know, some of these, you know, living giant animals whose bones had been left behind in, you know, South Carolina and Virginia. So I have a friend Justin Mullis who's argued that Thomas Jefferson is actually the first cryptozoologist <laughs> because he believed that these things were still alive and he actively, you know, he used government money to try and find them. And it's as <laughs> wow. the uh, expansion goes you know, further west. You know, it's the area, you know, where mammoths might still be living kind of slowly shrinks, you know, from you know anywhere west of the Mississippi River to the Pacific Northwest to Alaska. It gets tight. And also, you know, the idea of... Uh, mound cultures you know the giant native american mounds and you know people arguing oh you know willy mammoths must have uh, been used to build these or you know, oh you no know, this required so much manpower the mammoths went extinct because the native americans had to eat the mammoths to get the you know workers fed to build these mounds and so all these you know very much like with mokele Mabembe, and great zimbabwe you have these kind of pseudo historical notions tying in with uh colonial expansion, settler politics, appropriating these indigenous monuments and kind of inventing new cultures with them. So it's it's very similar to some of the stuff that I was working on in my dissertation just Hmm. happening in the Americas, in some cases about 200 years after, some cases a bit before uh, these things emerge in the African context. You've
1: got another project that you mentioned you're working on has to do with Dinosaurs living on Venus.
2: <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, so I'm co-working on a book on the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft and mm. uh, his astronomical views and uh, kind of like his views on space travel. So I'm working on this with an astronomer who's also a Lovecraft fan. But one of the few explicit science fiction stories Lovecraft wrote, uh, the story of called In the Walls of Eryx, is set on Venus and. He wrote this in the 1930s when people thought that Venus was this you know, tropical you know, planet, essentially mm. <laughs> no, very off. But this <laughs> is a, a common thing, and because of the conception of the solar system, it was believed that you know, the planets formed from the outside in. So Mars is an older version of Earth, Venus is a younger version of Earth. So therefore, if Venus is this younger version of Earth, it's going to have you know the younger equivalent of life. So. In Lovecraft's story, there's all these you know, lizards on Venus, and I was reading into this whole trope about this. And a man, Russell J. Hawley, actually wrote an article, Dinosaurs on Venus, that just explores this trope of just you know, al- almost from the beginning of in the 1800s of when people start writing science fiction novels about going to Venus there is this trope, you know. Obviously, they're going to find dinosaurs there. Uh, to the extent, I think one of my favorite examples of this, which I found independently, but it was a sign of you know just how widespread this trope was. But in, I think it was the early 1930s in the Soviet Union, you know, there's this story that this uh, science fiction author is writing about after, like, you know, the victory of the world communist revolution, the last capitalists are. Building a rocket to escape and go to Venus, but you know the good proletarian comrades and the ship's crew, you know, stage a mutiny and they fly to Venus and they drop the capitalists off and they get eaten by the dinosaurs on Venus. Uh, so <laughs> right there, it's, yeah, it's a. Uh, I love that when I found that.
0: <laughs> That's just like the Bigfoot getting dropped off as a prisoner exactly, yeah, in the right. exactly. the <laughs> Capitalists are the Bigfoot of Venus. Barely. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome!
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, one last question for our listeners: if they want to find out more about you and your work, is there a place they can go online?
2: Yeah, I would say I have a website which is perennially under construction. But the best place to find uh, whatever I'm rambling about now it's uh, on Twitter. It's uh, at Edward underscore Gemont. I'm sure you can find that pretty easily. But usually, whatever my new work is, I'm going to post about it there. And one of these days, I will actually finish uh,
0: the website.
1: (laughs) Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of other projects in the works, too. So
0: I know it's understandable. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, I had a great time. Us too.
1: Thank you so much again, Eddie, for coming onto our show. We had a great time chatting. And learning about even more dinosaur connections.
0: Oh, yeah. They come up everywhere.
1: hmm CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Fabrosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was a basal ornithischian dinosaur that lived in the late Triassic, early Jurassic, and what is now Lesotho the Elliott Formation. It walked on two legs, it had a long body and a short head and short arms, and it looked a lot like Lesutosaurus. And actually, some scientists think that Fibrosaurus specimens represent individual variations of Lesutosaurus.
0: Mm. Yeah, like we were talking about with Coelophysis, there was a lot of the plasticity in how they (laughs) developed. So yeah, you might get some that look Different than others, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a different animal.
1: Yeah. So for context, Lasutosaurus was about three feet or one meter long. That is small. Mm Mm-hmm. Fibrosaurus was herbivorous. The type species is Fibrosaurus australis. It was described in 1964 by Leonard Ginsburg, and the genus name means Fabre's lizard. It was named in honor of Jean Fabre, a geologist, and one of Ginsburg's colleagues in the expedition where they found the fossil. The species name refers to the fossil being found on the southern part of the Elliot Formation. So it means southern in Latin. So Fabra is southern lizard. The holotype was a partial jawbone, mandible, with three teeth. And then more fossils were found later, including two crushed skulls, vertebrae, ribs, and limb bones. Ginsburg described the holotype as thin and gracile, and the teeth as straight and triangular in profile, and said that the teeth were Ornithischian teeth, similar to Scelidosaurus harrisonai. It was described as a, quote, dinosaur of a small size with single rooted teeth possessing long vertical roots, end quote. And originally, Ginsburg said that Fibrosaurus was a Scelidosaurid. But then more Ornithischian fossils were found later, and scientists found that Fibrosaurus had too many features in common with other species, so then Fibrosaurus became a nomum dubium. Then in 1992, Richard Tholburn said that Fibrosaurus and Lesutosaurus were synonymous. Getting lumped. Yes. And then in 2005, Richard Butler reviewed Ornithischians from the Elliott Formation and said Fibrosaurus was, quote, based upon a single undiagnostic dentary, end quote, and considered it to be a nomum dubium. So just not enough unique features.
0: So two Richards took it from being a valid genus to being synonymized and then finally just being completely Undiagnostic.
1: I guess that is one way to put it, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Richard's headed out for the Fabrosaurus. <laughs> I
1: suppose so.
0: And our fun fact of the day goes back to our Mainuco Celsior dinosaur discovery. And in that paper, the authors mentioned that there are over fifty named species of sauropods in Patagonia alone.
1: That's so many.
0: That is a lot. That is way more than the total number of all the ankylosaurs in the world.
1: More reason for us to visit Patagonia.
0: <laughs> I guess so. 32 of those sauropods are from the New Ken Basin, most of those being titanosaurs. And the New Ken Basin includes the Allen Formation, which means that Minucocelsior being in the Allen Formation is among those 32. So until this paper was published, I guess there were 31. Now we're up to 32. More than one for every day of the month, even in the longest months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. What a great fact to end on.
0: Yeah, it was a short but sweet one this week. I can't remember the last time my fun fact was the short. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: was thinking mostly because it was about sauropods. That too. And that wraps up this episode of I Dino. Thank you so much for listening. Again, it's not too late to sign up to our Patreon so that you get access to our bonus content where we'll be talking about some of the non-dinosaurs covered in next week's Society of Vertebrate Paleontology Conference. Very (laughs) exciting. It's patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time.